are entering the Freedom Hut. It's finally done. The Mueller report has been handed in breaking news as we go on air. Mueller's probe is finished, my friends. What does that report contain? Will we find out? And will there be accountability for the lies, lies, and more lies that the Democrats and their media allies have told about this whole fiasco? That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We have confirmed that a letter was sent uh, to the chairman and ranking members of the Senate and House Judiciary Committees notifying them that the special counsel Robert Mueller investigation uh, was completed. Let me just read for a second from that text. It says, quote, special counsel Robert Mueller III has concluded his investigation of Russian interference. But this is the important part. Attorney General William Barr says, quote, he may be in a position to advise you, the committees, of the special counsel's principal conclusions as soon as this weekend. So this is the first time that we've had an indication that the attorney general may be able to move very quickly in terms of releasing some information and the findings to Congress. What's not in the letter so far that we've seen is a timetable for a public release. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Quite a Friday breaking news situation here, folks. The Mueller report is done. No more indictments. Uh Uh-oh. You mean they're not going to prosecute the president? You mean that Hillary's not really going to get to be president all of a sudden after all? Oh, no. We've known this day would come, and it is here. And damn, it feels good to be right, team. We've been ready to take a moment, take a little moment, you know, do a little little chin wagging, stretch stretch out a little bit, you know, just take a little strut around the office or around the kitchen or wherever you are and just just remember, we knew it. We knew it. The delusional left did not know it. They thought that Trump was finished and Mueller's on him and Mueller's, I mean, people built careers for themselves around this lie. People became household names around this nonsense. And no new indictments. You know what that means? That means that there was no collusion, folks. There was no collusion. It's not there. It's not real. It's not a thing. And now you will see so many people running for cover for a few days, not for long. Because there will, unfortunately, be no real media accountability for all the frauds, all the, the peddlers of lies and fiction and, and smears meant to take down Trump. And just to feed the malignant psychosis of the far left in this country that now runs the Democrat Party, that is the Democrat Party. And do you think that anyone will, will, will apologize for what they've done or say that they were wrong about Trump and they got caught up in the moment? And no, this was a mass hysteria, a mass hysteria that swept tens of millions of people into it and has come at a tremendous cost 
to the to the country, to the Trump administration's ability to conduct its business, to govern well, to enact the agenda. So in that sense, I also say this with with rage and with with sadness. I mean, yes, there's relief and there's happiness. We were right and it's done. So just take a moment, team. It's been two years in coming. We've been talking about this for two friggin' years. And now it's over. No more Mueller. Ooh, who's the next person he's going to indict? Oh, is he? What does he have on Trump? Oh, what are, the Russians? This, the Russians that. Russia, Russia, Russia. Finally, this insanity of at least the special counsel is coming to an end. It's a good day. It's a good day for America. I would also note that I think you can take something from the fact that this is being dropped on a Friday in late March. As some of my colleagues online have pointed out, while March Madness is going on and this is a government Friday post 5 p.m. news dump situation. If this report said that the president of the United States should be criminally charged. Now, I know they've said there's no indictments, but even if it, you know, if you were going to take the position that maybe they suggest that the president could have been indicted, but will not be indicted. And we don't know what's in the report yet. But if that were the case, trust me, they wouldn't wait until a Friday afternoon or evening to let this thing. Let this thing go. No way. I'm going to have to really take a beat and and think about how much how much uh twitter curb stomping i plan to do of insane blue check libs who have been running around with this for days for from days for for years now and they should be held to account i do not believe they will be held to account but they should be what they did was reckless what cnn did weaponizing itself against the Trump presidency by being the center of this conspiracy theory about Trump working with the Russians to steal an election from Hillary Clinton as though the as though the presidency was her property. Um, that, my friends, is not not something that we should let go lightly. That is not something that we should forget. And I do hope that there's an opportunity here for a reckoning. But the Mueller report is in. The special counsel is done. This national nightmare has at least ended a very destructive chapter. And... Take a moment for yourself, for those of you who have been listening to this show, those of you across the country, to just remember, we were right all along. These people at New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, all the different left-wing websites and move on and, and all media matters and these, these, these crappy, terrible, disgusting smear machines, they were wrong, we were right. They were full of it. We were full of truth. You deserve, we deserve a moment of victory on this one. We don't know what's in that report. We'll know more details soon, but we do know this. There was no collusion, and that's what this was all about. I've got more on this. Stay with me. 
think of it. I have a deputy appoints a man to write a report on me to make a determination on my presidency. People will not stand for it. Now, with all of that being said, for two years we've gone through this nonsense because there's no collusion with Russia. You know that better than anybody. And there's no obstruction. They'll say, oh, well, wait, there was no collusion. That was a hoax. But he obstructed in fighting against the hoax. Okay, think about that one for a second. Trump is right, folks. He's been right on this one all along. Okay, Trump is correct. His detractors, his haters. The Mueller report is done, which means there are no more indictments. Now, people are going to say, oh, look, shiny object, shiny object. The Southern District maybe is to that has the, the mandate of Russia collusion is finished. And there are no more indictments that have been handed down, which means that guess what, folks? There was no collusion, which we have known all along. And now you're going to have a lot of people who have a tremendous professional investment in this, who are going to try to come up with a way to explain to us. I mean, you know, CNN producer Mike was telling me that when this thing broke, CNN's got a panel with like everybody and their grandma. And they're like, oh, oh," trying to talk about this. CNN has zero credibility on this. Zero. None whatsoever. Nobody should be listening to what CNN has to say about Russia collusion because they've been putting hysterical liars on TV for two years. And just for the record, not to jump in here, but I think it's the first time that anybody on CNN has smiled in the year 2019. Just just want to say that. But, but Mike, why are they smiling? There's no collusion. <laughs> they're just happy that it's out. Uh they, I don't know. They don't. I don't even think they know why they're smiling. It's a. It's well, a I mean, I, I guess maybe maybe they're happy. Like you know, when yeah. sometimes criminals want to get caught. Uh-huh. You know, the the con is over now, right? The, the the CNN, all these people, and people wrote books about how collusion is you know going to bring down this presidency, and this is Watergate and all this stuff. Do any of those people get get to get mocked publicly? Do we do we get to say that that this has been an embarrassment all along? Do we get to point out that? They have been completely detached from reality for the last two years, and they've been doing so in bad faith in order to take down a presidency. You know, will there be any consequences for this? I I would like to say yes. I think the answer is probably no. Um, and, And we all know why this happened, what this came from, right? They could not accept they were too deranged with Hatred for Trump and, oh, all the loss of not having Hillary. Hello! Be president of the United States. They just couldn't handle it. Trump is right. This was all an excuse. Play clip eight. They came up with an excuse for losing an election. This should never happen to another president because most presidents wouldn't be able to take it. I know the politicians. I know the president. I know I know what we're dealing with. Most people wouldn't be able to take it. Let me tell you something, Maria. What happened to me should never happen to another president of the United States because I, de- I depend on this right here, mine, not other people. They have treated me so viciously. Uh, they have treated me so badly, and we did nothing wrong. You look at the others, and all of these people you hear about, uh, that had nothing to do with Russia, Russia collusion, nothing. It's all a big hoax. It's a witch hunt, and it's a hoax. It is a witch hunt. It is a hoax. And I want accountability for it. I don't know if we'll ever get it. I mean, these people that have been running around with this theory, these so-called serious journalists. I mean, CNN has just been a dumpster fire on this. Uh, just the worst. I mean, let's let's just be real about this, folks. 
the dominant news story of the Trump presidency of the last two years has been a media hoax. I don't think the media should ever recover from this. I don't think we should ever be forced to take them seriously again if we ever took them seriously. They have covered themselves in dishonor. And now they're going to act like we're supposed to accept this? And there, there were people who were paid analysts on the, on the left-wing network, which is everything except for Fox. There were paid analysts who were going on TV who were suggesting that the president's children might go to, you know, might get federally prosecuted. That the president's going to be impeached, maybe even removed from office. That the president himself might go to prison over this. Prison over what? I'll never forget when the president told me in the Oval Office, Russia collusion is just a, who would even do it? It's such a stupid idea. You remember stretching back to the, the beginning of the special counsel investigation. That's what I was saying. This doesn't even make sense as a plan. It's not even a, you know, if, if, if Trump is a bank robber, this is like showing up to a bank where you know the vault is empty. Who would do that? It's not even a good plot to steal an election. It doesn't make any sense. It wouldn't work. And it, it wouldn't work. And it would be incredibly risky. And the chances of being caught are so very high. And that's one thing that I, I, you have to keep this in mind. They're going to try to tell you that maybe it's, maybe there still was collusion. Maybe this still happened. They have to keep digging and looking more. If Robert Mueller and the very aggressive Democrat prosecutors that he pulled together spending tens of millions of dollars, if they didn't find collusion. Anybody who tells you that maybe there was still collusion is nuts. Anyone who tells you that we need Congress now to spend its time and resources trying to investigate this thing more thoroughly is either a liar or just crazy. Mueller had unlimited ability to pull phone records, pull emails, get all the content, pull all the business transactions, all the bank records, bring witnesses in, put them under oath, prosecute them, send them to prison if they didn't tell the truth. I mean, what more could realistically be done? The answer is nothing. Unless the goal here is twofold. Cover up for this lie and then move on to further harassment. Cover up this absolute disgrace perpetrated by the Democrats against this president and then quickly transition into, we need his tax returns, we need to investigate more, and oh, by the way, maybe there's still Russia collusion. This whole thing is the biggest political scandal of my lifetime. It's something that should really make people think long and hard about not just the media, but the, the core of the Democratic Party. I mean, is, is the Democratic Party a serious ethical I know you're laughing already, but but really, you know, do, do they do they operate with any good faith whatsoever? I mean, this is how they oppose a president. This is how they they show their political opposition by trying to weaponize the investigative functions of the federal government against the commander in chief and use their media allies and their lackeys in the mainstream press to create this this fabricated story. 
I, you know, we, we really, I can have a couple of drinks this weekend and just let this whole thing settle. We have been through an ordeal as a country. And for what? For what? So that, you know, Rachel Maddow has some just lunacy to share with her rabidly left-wing audience every night. So that Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer can pretend to be just journalists looking for the truth. And CNN can put all these former deep staters on its payroll all in an effort to try to find ways to take down Trump. This is what they've done. This is what they've offered up. I mean, they should be ashamed, but unfortunately they are incapable of shame. It's one of the traits that Democrats have that makes them very resilient. We will not let them scurry away from this one. We will not let them just pretend that this never happened. They need to be made to own. If they are not going to pay for it, at least they have to own it for the next two years. Uh, We need to make sure that the last two years matter for the next two years going into the 2020 election. Because, or the next whatever it is now, you know, 18 months. Because this has been a, this has been an abject catastrophe of lies, falsehoods, and so many people believed this. Why is it that you and I knew I didn't think there was no collusion. I knew there was no collusion. Why did we? Well, it's kind of like, how did I know Jussie Smollett was lying? And the left just couldn't figure that out. You know, at, at what point is it clear that there is a, a wisdom, knowledge, and sanity disparity between the right and the left? How much crazier would they have to be? How much more delusional and ideologically driven in defiance of reality would they have to be? Before we'd be able to say, you know what, we're not really dealing with uh, people playing with a full deck, so to speak, over here. That the, the left really has lost its mind. And that should be scary to everybody because now the far left is in control of the Democratic Party. We'll be talking more about that here in, in just a moment. But yes, the Mueller report has been handed in. My uh, with my Republican colleagues, they say things and I'm like, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? <laughs> and, uh, and like the, the person's like in charge of the national flood insurance program. They're like, what? <laughs> yeah. And the woman said, yes or no. <laughs> and he says, yeah. And she goes, yes. <laughs> You're really good at just saying eight. I mean, it's weird. Yeah, like, yeah, so yeah. Uh, kind of this Fox News lunacy. And it's like in the well, like we're voting on like gun reform. And I'm like, <laughs> I think it, I think it is interesting. And yeah. have you met with a lot of inter-party resistance? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Congressional hearings are not a Beyonce concert, you know? Uh-huh. Most powerful Democrat in the country, folks, right there. Number one right now, Uh, a woman who I have yet to hear her say a single insightful thing about anything. And I think the the way the media treats her is just yet another data point for why we should not take the media very seriously, because they do not view their job as as challenging power. They are all vessels for the aggrandizement of AOC. Uh, they view their role as finding ways to make her look even more fantastic. We'll talk later on in the show about what she said in Time magazine and, and some of the 
the uh, just idiocy on on display. But I can't get away from the fact that we've been told so many stories about how Trump is is you know not as rich as he says, and he's intellectually incurious, and he never reads, and only does watch TV. You know, you know if, if the Democrats put forward the my, my proverbial you know PhD in astrophysics Navy SEAL who just wants to better run the welfare state in this country and have a more humble foreign policy with less interventionism and you know is willing to secure the borders with and not promote amnesty well that now you can't be a democrat see this is the problem the democrats you know what i just talked myself out of this whole thesis they can't put forward a normal candidate or impressive candidate they have to put forward this this is this is who they are i think that we as conservatives have a a little bit of denialism here i I know i do sometimes I, i keep thinking that they're going to snap out of it and go back to their the democrat party has been socialist in its ethos for a long time uh increasingly aggressively socialist but at least they used to have to to play the game a little bit and make enough of the country think that they care more they care about workers and they care more about your health care and this was always the you know they're the party of the nice people who want to do the government's going to help you the government's going to be your friend it's going to it's going to assist you um and you know i i just have got to say that it's it's very very frustrating that we are now in a position where everything that we said was going to happen with the Democrats about how they would be uh, the party of socialism that would be calling for single payer has come true. And, and the media just blows past that. Like, what, are, are conservatives, a, are we a bunch of wizards? Can we tell the future? No. We've understood what the game plan is here for a long time, but now they're finally at the point where they can't hide anymore. Now, you know, now, now we see that left to their own devices... The Democrat Party is now the party of Democrat socialism. They're not Stalinists. Yes, they're not hardcore communists that are going to set up a central committee, but their central committee is really just a dispersed one. It's just a very broad communist central committee. The Democrats, their central committee is, you know, the barons of Silicon Valley and the heads of uh, media, media organizations and they're, they're, you know, the, the billionaires that are pushing climate change and major lifestyle choices on people that are actually going to have to live with the consequences of it, unlike the billionaires. So, you know, there, there's a little bit, there's, a, there's shadows of that. There's little flavors of that, but they're not yet hardcore and they're not going to be anytime soon. I think hardcore Stalinists, although on speech, they're getting, you know, I, I kind of go back and forth on some of the stuff. I, I talk myself into what I think is... Uh, the real essence of where the Democratic Party, well, where it is now, but also where it's going. And I, I just think that, you know, they they can't they can't help themselves. You know, AOC, as much as I, I want to believe that Ocasio-Cortez is some kind of aberration, that she is a a departure from otherwise solid Democrat Party norms. No, what's happened is she is the Democrat Party. Now, Pelosi is just a a part of the machinery of the Democrat Party. But the person at the controls who's deciding where the machine's going to go, 
And what it's going to do? That's now AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and some of these other prominent Democrats that you're seeing, like Cory Booker, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, they are going to be drawn further and further into that. That you are not going to see this snap into the center. And that's why I think Biden, when he does get in, I know the polls show him being pretty strong, but it'll be clear to people who are astute observers pretty quickly. I think Biden is going to look like the old the old guy who is, that's right, you know what's coming, doing a belly flop into the shallow end of the pool. I mean, it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. He's not compelling. He's not in the zeitgeist at all. Uh, you know, the, the only way he maybe makes it work is this idea that was floated this week of Stacey Abrams, kind of like Beto and that another Democrat who lost, but we're still supposed to think is a winner anyway, uh, and, and doesn't even accept that she lost. Abrams may run on the bottom side of the ticket. And Biden says that it may say that he'll only serve one term. And so then you get the optics of a nationally recognizable African-American female politician as the, you know, the person in waiting essentially to be the president as the VP. You know, the idea that she'd, she'd, it will be handed off to her in 2024 It'd be hers to run with in 2024 and that Biden would retire after four years as president. That's the only way that I think that Biden really has a chance of being president. I I, I do not. And and I don't think people care enough about the VP. Look what happened with John McCain and Sarah Palin. I don't think that people care enough about the VP for that strategy to work. I think everyone realizes the VP is, you know, VP is there in case of VP is not exactly blowing people's minds. We'll be right back. Governor, some of your male competitors have vowed to put a woman on the ticket. Yes or no? Would you do the same? Well, again, uh, of course. But I think that we should be. Well, I'll, I'll ask you another question. How come we well, aren't I'm ask- asking the question? I know. <laughs> I know. But how come we're not asking, we're not asking more often the women? Would you be willing to put a man on the ticket? When we get to that point, <laughs> I'll ask you that question. So that was. I know we we played that for you yesterday, and just. I mean, Hickenlooper seems like kind of a dork, um, you know, not that far left from what I understand. I don't really know much about him, but this is an interesting, an interesting little moment because that, you know, was just the thing about Hickenlooper that got attention this week. People got really, really upset about this. And, and I'm noticing that this trend on the left, uh, it's, look, there's, there has been a, a hyperventilating victimhood that is at the heart of feminism for a long time. I mean, feminists have thought for a long time that they are, you know, that, that women, and I mean, in recent years, I'm not talking about when women did not have equal rights, which was, which was wrong. And, but you know, that has been corrected. Women do have equal rights. And in fact, if you go into family court now, what you will find is that women actually have in some legal context, more rights than men. Family courts are incredibly skewed toward females over males uh for example just just because the mom is is uh the one who is more likely to get custody of the kids just because right so on a legal basis uh, women actually have more rights than men in some contexts and in general have the same rights but there's still this you know the the and i, and I think it really comes from the boomer feminists out there 
who unfortunately, a lot of them, I think, have some regrets about how certain things went, certain things have gone. Certainly regrets about Hillary Clinton not winning the 2016 election. There's a bitterness. I mean, feminism and bitterness are very much intertwined. And also feminists don't have a sense of humor, which is another really undesirable, unlikable trait of feminism. They just, nothing is funny to a feminist, right? You know, do you hear the joke about the feminist and the, and the other feminists? You know, that's not funny. That's the joke. Um, here's what the media said about Hick- Hickenlooper. Look, he made a kind of goofy, like, oh, you know, maybe we should ask if the men will be on the ticket. You know, but he, he actually kind of got it a little bit of a truth there, which is why, why am I required to have a female as a vice president? Why don't I just have the best person for the job? Right. And the media got upset about this. Play three. John Hickenlooper's answer about the possibility of a female running mate sparking backlash. I don't know what the heck he was talking about. There are a lot of Democrats who feel that women haven't been given their just due. So when Hickenlooper says things like that, he's basically dismissing those concerns. <laughs> Craig, I don't know. I don't even know how to reply to that. I mean, 45 presidents have been men. I mean, I think that speaks for itself. I think it's just one of those uh answers that you really groan at. I certainly did when I saw it. I think I'm going to send Governor Hickenlooper a copy of those placemats with all the president's faces on them <laughs> that are all men. See, this is this is at the center of of why identity politics is is an intellectual failure and, and will always fall into self-contradiction, will always fall into hypocrisy and an inability to defend itself as an as an ideological system. And so therefore, it will just go on attack. It'll always go ad hominem, right? Identity politics cannot stand because it isn't based in, in a principle that is defensible. If, in fact, it's the case that we should have a president who is a woman just because we have not had a president or a vice president who is a woman, then shouldn't it also be the case that we, we have a duty to have the next 45 presidents be women? Don't we have to balance it out? I mean, if if we're going to take the position that it's not in the here and now when we are actively deciding a question and, you know, in 2019 in America, it's not about who is the best and who the people choose for the job, that gender should matter as a as a factor, a perhaps deciding factor in that. Why shouldn't gender matter for the next 45? When is it enough? This is why the left also gets very uncomfortable with the idea of quotas. They want the appearance of a quota without the admission of a quota existing because, well, how the moment that you say that you have a quota, you're not basing something on merit or in this case, you're not basing it on the will of the people. You are mandating something that is external from that will. You're mandating something that is different from the meritocracy or what have you, right? There's a separation of the of principle here that occurs. So. When they when they bring up, you know, why don't you have a women, a woman who will be on your on your ticket? And he's like, well, why do do I have to? You know, he, he said it in like a, in a goofy way, but the point is valid, which is, does he have to? Is this now a requirement? I mean, why is he being asked that? Uh, and now I don't think it's a problem that uh, Donna Bash do not call her Dana. It's Donna Bash. Um. I don't think it's a problem that she as a journalist asked him. And it's fine. I mean, she can say, should you have a woman on your ticket? But what I think is funny is that the media got angry at him for saying, it's kind of a silly, it's kind of an unimportant, silly question. 
um, because it, it either you either want the best person for the job. And this is why identity politics, whether it's based on gender or race or sexual orientation or anything else, always runs into this issue. They want to tell us that it's the best person should get the job. But then when we say, OK, well, how do we how do we determine who the best person is for the job? They say, well, you know, we really need a person who looks like X. We really want a person who is of Y background. But that that doesn't that's a superficial characteristic. That's not that that's not within the wheelhouse of how we're supposed to decide this. That's an that's an externality that you're now saying should perhaps even be the decisive factor. This is always the problem with identity politics. It's always the problem with the intersectional left. They want you to they, they want to create the anxiety around accusations of sexism, accusations of racism. And so people will act accordingly. You know, you're always going to get you know, the tie goes to the aggrieved minority, the aggrieved sex, the aggrieved sexual orientation, whatever it may be. And in a lot of cases, a lot more than just the tie. But if you bring that up and say, well, hold on a second. This is I mean, for for example, if you have a, a talk with uh, any Democrat about whether it was an advantage for Barack Obama to be an African-American running for president, they look at you like you're crazy. Now, I'm not saying that as an African-American, Barack Obama did not overcome a lot of adversity in his life. I'm not African-American and I'm sure he did. But this pretense that it wasn't a a differentiating and overwhelmingly viewed as positive, groundbreaking historical characteristic of Obama that, yes, he was black is delusional. But the left still oh, I mean, they they claim that the fact that he was black was a disadvantage in the election. And all the evidence is to is to the contrary, which speaks to, I think, the. Uh, you know, it, it, it's all to the good. And, and I'm, I'm glad that the American people are what we are, which is open minded and tolerant. And, and you know, we aren't nearly as sexist, racist and all these other things as the left wing media would have us believe. Uh, but I mean, let's just can we at least be honest about these things? When is something an advantage? You know, they'll tell you vote for this person because of their gender or their, you know, uh, their ethnicity or their sexual orientation. But when you say, OK, so they have an advantage now because of that, you're told, no, no, you can't say that. Well, well which is it? I just want to know, can we have clarity on this? If you're telling me it's a reason to vote for a person, that's an advantage. That That's not a disadvantage. Um, and if you're telling me or you're telling Hickenlooper that he has to have a woman as vice president, don't also tell him that he's picking the vice president because that's the best person, because if you were picking the best person, you wouldn't tell him he has to pick a woman. You see, this is the incoherence of identity politics laid bare for you. And and people in the media, you know, they don't grapple with this stuff in any in any serious sense, in any serious way. And uh, that's why I have so much fun making fun of their silliness on a regular basis. But uh, our, wow, our Friday is already rolling along here, team. We have much more to go. I'll be right back. So I interviewed a Democratic candidate for the presidency today. Um, and I got to tell you, team, it was actually it was actually pretty, pretty intriguing, this fellow. 
Um, I think his policies would, if enacted, his broad, uh, you know, major policies would be really bad for the country. Uh, but I think he is an earnest and sharp guy. And I can engage I can engage with leftists who want to engage in good faith. Always. I'll engage with anyone who wants to engage in good faith. Right. If someone wants to sit down and tell me that we need to kill all the cows and get off of fossil fuels and they want to talk about it, I'll do that. If they if they want to take that position, kill all the cows, no more fossil fuels. And if I don't agree, it's because I'm a racist, bigot, sexist. That's not really a useful exercise. To his credit, Democratic candidate for the presidency, Andrew Yang, is in the I want to talk category. And so we had a, a, a sit down today. It was on Rising, the uh, left, right, liberal slash conservative, both sides show that I do at the Hill. And we had, had an interesting talk. So first it was on universal basic income, which he calls the freedom dividend. And the idea there is that there will be a massive uh, program of $1,000 a month for everyone in the United States over the age of 18. And I said, how will you fund this? He said, well, we'll, we'll tax some of these super successful uh, Silicon Valley companies and, and other industry and probably Wall Street, maybe a special internet tax. So that will be a, a massive program, incredibly expensive and a massive tax to pay for it. But at least he's saying, no, we're going to really tax the, you know, tax the you know what out of things. I mean, we're going to really go for it. But you're all everyone's going to get a check. No matter who you are, you get a check every month from the government for a thousand dollars. Do I think this is a good idea? No, because the thousand is going to turn into, OK, well, some people should get two thousand and then some people should get three thousand. And then, you know, it. Whenever you create an entitlement and then you start haggling over how much bigger the entitlement gets. So I don't think it's a good idea, but it's not a not a bizarre idea. It's not like the Green New Deal crazy level of, of ideas. Um, he also wants Medicare for all. And I keep saying that in a, in a world where uh, we don't care about the debt, Medicare for a world where we don't care about the debt. And if you don't care about rationing and, and shortages in care, if you don't care about waiting six months to see your doctor, then we could do Medicare for all. The problems with it are that you're going to wait forever because they'll be rationing and it's going to blow a massive hole through an already sinking ship of a debt. It's going to be completely, you know, we're, we're going to be at 30 trillion dollars before you know it. I mean, fast. If we do Medicare for all, it's going to be wildly expensive. And but if you're willing to wait and you're and he understands this is very expensive. And, you know, he says we already spend more than other countries on care. And to that, I say, first of all, Americans and they never want to talk about this. And, folks, I got to as I sit here and I'm thinking about the uh, gluten free pizza that I'm going to be eating tonight and the gluten free pasta that I may be ordering. Americans are not as healthy as their European counterparts. We require, this is a fact, don't get mad at me. I'm not telling you, hey, put down that cheeseburger and eat some tofu, because I'm not a communist. But Americans are not as healthy as our uh, Europeans. And so we automatically have higher healthcare costs because of that. And we also have better outcomes, uh, particularly for cancer, treatment than anybody over there so if you get really sick you want to be in america if you get a little sick you might want to be in europe but americans tend to be sicker than their european counterparts and oh by the way one of the reasons that our healthcare cost is so high is prescription drug prices and that's just cronyism 
that's not a function of, you know, Medicare or Medicaid. I mean, that's just legislation and regulations that are in place that allow these companies to just benefit themselves in a way that is egregious. That's that is what's happening. You know, they sell it for different prices around the world, but they sell it for a much, much, much higher price here to extract as much as they can out of the, out of the American market. I mean, there, there is some, and the Trump administration knows this, there's some regulatory reform that has to happen there. No question about it. Uh, so Medicare for all he likes, again, he knows the ups and the, the, he doesn't accept the downsides that I brought up to him, but he at least is aware of them. This guy, look, this guy, Yang, he went on Joe Rogan's podcast. He's a, People are calling his supporters the Yang Gang. Uh, he's an interesting guy. And, uh, you know, he's very polite. He's very, he's not, he doesn't run around calling everybody a racist and a bigot and everything else. So I, I found him far more interesting to talk to than some of the other Democrats that I, I've come across recently. Way less interested in lecturing uh, people, at least based on my interview with him today, uh, lecturing people on, you know, how just Donald Trump is, is some horrible monster and a racist and, and everything else. And then his other big idea is, and this ties into universal basic income, is that automation is going to get rid of millions and millions of jobs within the next 10 years. And even if we have the displacement of those jobs filled in other ways, it'll take a while. It'll be highly disruptive and we need to be prepared for it. I think that's a, a that is also a serious argument. Now, I'm not sure that the answer is to just give people money. Um, and I, I don't and I also don't believe that anybody can really predict the future. You can pre- you should prepare for the future based on your best predictions, but nobody can really predict the future. Uh, so on automation, though, and he loved the book Rise of the Robots, which I have. And I'm embarrassed to tell you, I have it in my stack right now. I have not gotten to it yet, but it is in my read stack. I got to get through this book on the, the lost city of the of the monkey god. I'm never reading another book about archaeology. Ooh, you know, all these archaeologists are like, I had to sleep in this little tent and there were snakes outside. Ooh, you know, and then I found a big mound that maybe was used for burial purposes. I just, I got to get to a point in life where I, I see my thing is I won't bail on a book. I rarely will bail on it. I, I, cause I think that I've, I've like given up and I won't let the book, if it's a bad book, I don't want to let it win by saying, I'm not going to read this book anymore. But then you get stuck reading a bad book for hours and hours and hours, especially and if it's bad, you really, uh, you know, I have very few books that I've only gotten halfway through and then finished off. So, so, you know, the Yang thing was, was, uh, was a worthwhile exchange today. I have to tell you, I really, I found him to be, um, I disagree with him on everything, but it was, it reminded me that it's possible to think that a leftist is wrong about everything and not want to scream at them to stop being a psycho lib that knows nothing. You know, he's he's a, he's thoughtful about being wrong, which I can appreciate. Then he's got some other ideas. I'm just going to tell you, get me real excited. And the Federalist pulled some of these together. He wants a national texting line to report annoying robocalls. I think the robocalls are specifically set up to go off on my phone while I'm doing this radio show. And I cannot tell you how many times I have in my head had to stifle a curse and throwing my phone at the wall because I'm about to just reach that. That moment of I, I've been building to that one thought that's coming during the monologue and it's and then, you know, on my desk and it's a robocall. I mean, I can tell it's a robocall. So I like that idea. Uh, he got into an exchange with Ben Shapiro about ending infant circumcision. And I we asked him about that today. And uh, this was just on Twitter. 
but he he thinks that circumcision isn't something it's not the health benefits are not clear there's obviously male circumcision we're talking about here and whenever just talking about it kind of makes me think ow i'm i'm just going to be honest with you ooh um but you know it's an idea and it's something he might be talking to people about and then he also thinks that uh we should have the american mall act to deal with the fact that malls are turning into ghost towns which you know, I don't know if the government really has a role in that. I think that real estate will get sold to other other use and that'll be fine. But anyway, he's a thoughtful guy. So, you know, I'm not just here to just trash libs. I like to engage in ideas and he's a guy with ideas. So we engage in them and explain why they are wrong. But I'm glad that he spent his time with us today. I, I did. Uh, I did appreciate it. And team will be right back. Well, the Trump administration has behaved precisely the opposite of the way that the Obama administration behaved during the green, the green effort in uh, in Iran. Uh, instead of shunning the people, uh, we've supported them. Instead of denying the rights of the people of Iran, we're supporting the rights of the people of Venezuela. We're committed to this. We're going to stay the course. Uh, there are multiple elements to this effort. There's the political element. There's the economic element. We are desperately trying to get humanitarian assistance to the people of Venezuela. Uh, we're committed to helping uh, Venezuela, the region, uh, deny Maduro the opportunity uh, to engage in this thuggish behavior that has been so harmful to ordinary Venezuelans. We're determined to achieve this outcome, and we're optimistic that we can get there. At some point, uh, I would imagine uh, things will change, but we really haven't done the really tough sanctions yet. We can do the tough sanctions, and all options are open, so we may be doing that. But we haven't done the toughest of sanctions, as you know. We've done... Uh, I would say uh, right down the middle, but we can go a lot tougher if we need to do that. Venezuela is still very much in the balance. No one really knows it hangs in the balance. What's going to what's going to happen here? Um, Is it going to be Guaido? Is it going to be Maduro who is left standing at the end of this? You have uh, Vice President Pence writing in the Miami Herald the following Early yesterday morning in Venezuela, armed members of Nicolas Maduro's secret intelligence force broke into the homes of government officials connected to the only legitimate president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. Maduro's thugs threatened their lives and those of their family members, and they brutally kidnapped Roberto Marrero, President Guaido's chief of staff. Even now, Mr. Marrero is being held against his will in an undisclosed location. The United States calls for the immediate release of Roberto Marrero, We will not tolerate Marrero's imprisonment or the intimidation of the legitimate government of Venezuela, and those responsible must be held accountable. Maduro must release Marrero now. This egregious violation of the rule of law is only the most recent example of Maduro's brutality and despotism. Last month, the world watched as the dictator danced in Caracas while his henchmen murdered civilians and blocked truckloads of food and medicine designed or destined for the suffering people of Venezuela. Just a few weeks before his inauguration, Maduro's intelligence forces arrested interim President Guaido in a shameless attempt to bully him into silence. Fortunately, they failed. Maduro's got to go, is what Vice President Pence is saying here. And it is the United States government's official policy now that he, and has been for a while, that he must go. But dictators, thugs, despots, they tend not to go particularly quietly. And I can't say that I would expect anything different here from Maduro. And this is where I, I'm, I'm caught in this 
push pull in my brain between wanting to do more to help ensure the best outcome here for a country where there are legit there are real u.s interests and not not just humanitarian interests but we do have an interest in access to venezuelan oil reserves that's just and, and oil markets that's just the truth uh, we also have a humanitarian interest in trying to help ease the suffering of people who are malnourished uh, can't get medicine murders skyrocketing no rule of law on the streets and and tyranny increasingly holding them in in its grip so i i feel all of those things very acutely i also though have this sense that we just don't need to take on another problem set for ourselves that's really somebody else's problem i mean the diplomatic relations the basic actions that we're taking in venezuela i think it's the right move but it, we got to have clear lines about how far we're willing to go here. And when you know, Trump is saying there that there may be additional, additional sanctions, um, okay, sanctions, fine. But beyond that, we have to start looking at when when are we doing too much and, and making something more uh, more our problem than it should be. Then you also have some leftists in this country who are still. They still look they they can't really justify. I mean, they they will say they're worried in a, in a sense about what I'm worried about, which is U.S. mission creep in Venezuela, taking on more of this for ourselves. But I really just think that that's a cover for them because they have a, a sympathy for Maduro based on the aims of the Bolivarian revolution, which is a social justice based approach to government. That's at the very root of this. That the, you know, North Americans, by that they mean, you know, us, Norte Americanos or whatever, that the, we are the the reason for so much of the economic disparity and, and deprivation in Venezuela previously. I mean, now I think that's a harder case to make, although they still, Maduro still makes that case. And it's our fault. It's on us. And that if only the greedy landowners and business owners uh, were brought to heel by the government, everybody would have plenty of food and they'd all just be kind of hanging out. And, you know, one the country would be like one big beach party or something. That is a massive failure. We all know this. There are these leftists I come across in, in America, in the media in particular, who just won't accept that Maduro is a really bad guy and has got to go. They still hold to this idea that, you know, he is legitimate, even though the election that, is the only reason he's even technically considered the president was fraudulent. And I haven't come across anyone who disagrees with that assessment. But you know, I, I also spoke today to a, an author of, author of a book about uh, Afghanistan. And he, he's written a book about Bo Bergdahl. And essentially, he's using Bo Bergdahl from what I gathered from the interview. I haven't read the book, and I don't plan to, to be fair. Um, I did not find it a particularly compelling pitch. But the book is about Bo Bergdahl, and and he's this author and his and his uh, co-author have decided to make Bergdahl something of a, uh, a a a cautionary tale about the U.S. strategic mistakes in Afghanistan. Essentially, Bergdahl was the result of bad U.S. policy ideas and and bad strategy, and and really. 
You know, he doesn't hurt, doesn't, had, he didn't have a critical word to say about Bergdahl today, this guy. Now, he wasn't, his co-author is a veteran. He wasn't a veteran today who I was talking to. Uh, but I, I also had to sit there and say, I don't agree with using Bergdahl as a, uh, you know, his situation as a metaphor. That's what I was, the word I was looking for before, for the entire situation of Afghanistan. But I do think uh, that, as we are now in ongoing, open negotiations with the Taliban, and in fact are negotiating, according to this author today, with some of the very people that we traded for Bo Bergdahl from the Taliban, uh, that Afghanistan is one of these. This is where I'm going to need Trump. We're going to talk more about how Trump will just pull the trigger. Other people won't do it on foreign policy, but Trump will pull the trigger. I need him to pull the trigger on Afghanistan because we've got to say we're done. And then we're done doesn't mean, all right, everybody, you know, load up the the, the uh, C-130s and, you know, we're all coming home tomorrow. But it does mean in the next 12 months, we're leaving full stop. We are gone. We will have an embassy there. We'll have some training forces here and there. But this notion of a permanent 8,000 man or 7,000 man military presence in Afghanistan for which that would that indicates that we have a permanent responsibility for the national security state of that country uh, that that just needs to end. I mean, we're already negotiating with the Taliban. We are negotiating and people don't want to say this. We are negotiating with terrorists. That's happening. We're not supposed to do that. But Trump, I think, just as you will see a full U.S. withdrawal during the Trump presidency from Syria, I, I do believe he will do that. Even though the foreign policy smart set doesn't like that, they want you know Syria to be another forever war, I think that Trump might also finally be the one who ends the war in Afghanistan. I certainly hope so. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly neat to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Figure we got some time to dive into some national security issues on this Friday. And for that, we are joined by my friend Adam Crado. He is a senior writer for National Security and International Affairs at the Washington Free Beacon. He has a piece today about Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, in which he writes the following. Ilhan Omar holding secret fundraisers with Islamic groups tied to terror. Adam, great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. What's going on with this uh, fresh freshman congresswoman? Yeah, look, so so everybody, I, I think, is pretty aware of her comments uh, accusing Jewish people and pro-Israel members of Congress of having dual loyalties, you know, these age-old anti-Semitic tropes that she seems quite unapologetic for. And I think what's so fascinating is that now, with the radical anti-Israel and anti-Semitic left, she seems to be raising quite a bit of money. She's become a darling to these groups, and there are at least uh, two so far that she's spoken to under cover of secrecy. That means these events are not open to the press. Even if you want to attend, you cannot. And video is hidden from the public on it. And these two groups, one of them is called uh, Islamic Relief. That is an international charity that 
for quite some time has been accused of having links to uh, Hamas, the terror group. It actually has been banned uh, by several countries for these terror ties, including Israel and other ones. The second group you're probably familiar with, CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. CARE was an unindicted co-conspirator uh, in a massive terror fundraising case. And, of course, their rhetoric on Israel is what you would expect uh accusing the Jewish state of war crimes, these kinds of things. So naturally, you can see why she would uh, be invited to speak. And what I find so curious about that is that she's, she's actually raising money off of her anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic comments. And I think one of the problems the sources I spoke to are pointing at is that this is done in secrecy. There's no access to reporters, uh, and I think that's very bad. I would like to wonder, in addition to what she's saying in public that's anti-Semitic and anti-Israel, what could she possibly be saying in private to these uh, you know, primarily Islamic Muslim audiences? I think that's concerning. Now, what has changed, Adam, in your estimation, about where the, the Democrat Party is? Because we just had this whole dust-up, uh, this whole kerfuffle over Ilhan Omar's comments when it comes to Israel, and it seems like, from what you're telling me, no one, nothing has changed, and no one expects it to change in terms of her conduct, or really how she talks about Israel. No, look, I mean, she's, she's being rewarded by that far-left radical element of the Democratic Party that actually is becoming more of the standard bearer of the party rather than the vocal minority. Um, and, and I like to tell people, we could see this coming, right? This is not a surprise. I know a lot of people are like, oh, my God, uh, people who are actually members of Congress are making anti-Semitic and wildly anti-Israel comments. But I would point to the 2012 Democratic National Convention, and even further back, they removed pro-Israel language uh, from their platform. They removed the issue of God, um, and delegates booed the mention of Israel there. So look, this, this local minority for some time has been gaining traction. I mean, we can even look at somebody like Bernie Sanders, this socialist who's a darling of the far Democratic left. Two of his top advisors, as I recently wrote, are long Longtime anti-Israel activists who actually worked at the Center for American Progress when it was embroiled in an anti-Semitism scandal. So you, you, you can see where they're plucking these people from, and it's not just the new ones like Omar and Rashida Tlaib and um, Orcasio Cortez. It's it's really infiltrated the entire Democratic Party as a whole. You have a number of uh, Democrat. 2020 contenders who are not going to be going to the American Israel uh, mm. Public Affairs uh, uh, Committee this year, the APAC conference, which usually is kind of a who's who in American foreign policy, this this conference. Here's uh, Beto O'Rourke saying why he's skipping. Play 16. I'm here in, in South Carolina. Um, I'm here in front of people who will decide who the Democratic nominee is, um, who are going to decide this next election, who will decide who will defeat President Trump and then bring this country together. Um, that's that's the best way for me to spend this time. So a non-answer, really. Basically, there's other stuff I can do. Okay, but you're not going to APAC, and people are noticing that. And it's not just uh, Robert O'Rourke. You also have uh, a number of others, including... Uh, Amy Klobuchar and um, 
Who else is on? Well, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren. They are not going. I mean, the, the name, really the who's who of Democrat candidates. What's going on here, Adam? Look, it shows you how the party has morphed. Um, Israel used to be very much a threshold issue, and that means for both parties, once the plurality of voters saw that a person was sufficiently pro-Israel, that means they understand the importance and the history of the U.S.-Israel military alliance, how it benefits both countries. People usually moved on. But this is no longer the case for the left, and this is why you see the divide in APAC. There is uh, more of a reward and an incentive to boycott what these people think is, you know, these nefarious Jews controlling foreign policy because it resonates with that far left wing of the party that is now more mobilized and more likely to turn out in an election. And I think we could actually find ourselves in a place uh, and, and just looking what's happening in the region now where we have a president, a Democratic president, who does not understand and put value in that U.S. Israel alliance. And that's really coming at a bad time, considering what's happening with Iran in the region and Syria and Yemen elsewhere, and certainly with its terror proxies like Hezbollah, Hamas. They are all um, increasingly building on Israel's borders. And a president who doesn't understand that is really going to jeopardize uh, uh, the Jewish state. We're speaking to Adam Credo of the Washington Free Beacon. Adam, can you tell me what what happened? This didn't get much play today, but something's going on because everyone's waiting for the Mueller report on you know with bated breath. What happened with Iran today? You told me some interesting stuff went down. Yeah, you know, you're right. People don't pay nearly enough attention to this. Uh, the Iran nuclear issue still is ongoing. While we've pulled out of that agreement, uh, what we see is Europe scrambling to save the deal and actually develop back-channel ways to continue doing business with Iran and skirt U.S. sanctions. Off of that, the State Department sanctioned um, a bunch of Iranian entities. These are shell companies and individuals, and what they do is they operate on an illicit procurement network that continues to bring in nuclear technology and uh, nuclear know-how into the Islamic Republic. So off of that, what we've seen now, the State Department revealed, is that, in fact, Iran never stopped its nuclear weapons program. It merely pressed pause, and all of the people, all of the technology, all of that infrastructure continues to be working, continues to be there. And what we found is all they really need to do is push play at any given moment and continue that march to nuclear weapons. So we see now the Trump administration sanctioning their scientists, uh, shell companies that operate this illicit procurement network. I would say uh, covering the State Department for a while, I'm usually critical of them, but this is actually a very, very strong move that's going to help choke off those illicit back channels. All right. State Department doing some some good stuff. Uh, any? Yeah. But by the way, well, the uh, Trump administration also has, has spoken, or President Trump spoken about the Golan Heights. Bring us up to speed on that. Yeah, so the Golan Heights contested territory on Israel's northern border, uh, annexed from Syria several decades ago following a war. The, the Golan has kind of sat in limbo for quite some time, but we're seeing it become particularly important because of what's happening in Syria, the spill out of militants into uh, Lebanon and also Syria up on the northern border, and also Iranian militants affiliated with Hezbollah and other militant groups also um, kind of amassing on that border. So the Israelis have really made a push, uh, not just with the Trump administration, but with Congress to see a formal recognition that this 
uh, territory is not in limbo. It actually belongs to Israel, and that would allow the U.S. to send military equipment, particularly for use against these terrorists on the northern border, something that uh, the U.S. government cannot do at this point because it doesn't recognize the Golan Heights. So more and more that area, um, I've hiked there, it's beautiful, but more and more that area is unmanageable because of the spread of militants from Syria and, of course, Lebanon, where Hezbollah rules. Adam Credo, everybody, Washington Free Beacon to read his latest. Adam, always great to have you all, man. Come back soon. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Team, we'll be right back. The United States believes that negotiations should result in two states with permanent Palestinian borders with Israel, Jordan, and Egypt, and permanent Israeli borders with Palestine. We believe the borders of Israel and Palestine should be based on the 1967 lines with mutually agreed swaps. Yeah, 1967 lines. So uh, relinquishing the Golan Heights, Obama, huh? Is that the way you think it should go? This is how prime, that was back in 2011, President Obama, who who was really uh, a, a break from the bipartisan foreign policy consensus about the U.S. relationship with Israel and especially the sensitivities around uh, or the sensitivities with Israel and, and it, some of its hostile neighbors, also known as its neighbors. Um, Obama said that, and then Netanyahu had this to say about Obama, the, the at least self-described, I'm sure, foreign policy sage. Uh, here's Netanyahu's response to Obama, 15. I think for there to be peace, Palestinians will have to accept some basic realities. The first is that while Israel is prepared to make generous compromises for peace, it cannot go back to the 1967 lines. Because these, uh, these lines are indefensible, because they don't take into account certain changes that have taken place on the ground, demographic changes that have uh, taken place over the last 44 years. So then, yeah, I was like, yeah, Obama, that was, he was saying that at the United Nations. So it was in this country. He's like, uh, Obama doesn't know what he's talking about, which wouldn't be the first time. Well, I bring you the Trumpster, my friends, because as of yesterday, Trump, with a tweet, and now it is the policy of the United States government, that the United States has said that the Golan Heights, which we just talked to Adam about, which is this area of major national security and strategic importance to Israel, because if the bad guys have it, guess what? They can, from an elevated position not just surveil, but rain down rockets and artillery and all kinds of very, very bad stuff right into Israel proper. And when you have the Syrian civil war continuing on as is and no realistic prospect of that ending anytime soon, guess what? That's unacceptable. So President Trump just said, you know what? We're just going to tell our friends Israel that uh, we recognize, well, the rest of the world may not recognize it. We recognize that Golan is now a part of Israel's territory. Play 13. I've been thinking about doing it for a long time. It's been a very hard decision for every president. No president has done it. This is sovereignty. This is security. This is about regional security. It's not about Netanyahu's reelection. No, I don't. I wouldn't even know about that. I wouldn't even know about that. I have no idea. I hear he's doing okay. I don't know if he's doing great right now, but I hear he's doing okay. But I would imagine the other side, whoever's against him, is also in favor of what I just did. Every president has said, do that. 
I'm the one that gets it done. He's right, folks. Got to give credit where it's due. The president took action on this issue. And foreign policy is one of those realms where the commander in chief has a lot of leeway and therefore also a lot of responsibility for what happens. It is really in the commander in chief's hands what happens in in these situations in many cases. And, you know, this is just another time when Trump being Trump really pays dividends because other leaders are, oh, we need to have a study and a committee. We need to keep talking about this. And no, no, actually, this is just what needs to happen. And it reminds me of the controversy over moving the embassy to Jerusalem, which even from my time in government, I remember people saying, oh, it'll be such a big deal if if the U.S. ever moves the embassy to Jerusalem, the whole Arab world, you know, everyone will be up in arms. And Trump came in, he goes, you know what? Israel is an ally. It's a country. Their capital is Jerusalem. It's always going to be Jerusalem. So we're just going to put the embassy there. Okay, thanks. And he was right. He was right. Sometimes cutting through the nonsense is, in fact, the single most important thing that the foreign policy echo chamber should strive for. Right. Sometimes just getting out of this consensus driven opinion making and saying, here's what needs to go down. Here's what reality is and doing it and just take action. That's the right move. Trump did that with the embassy. And you'll notice the whole Middle East isn't in flames. Oh, no, they moved the embassy to Jerusalem. I mean, they used to have a consulate there. And the embassy was in Tel Aviv, but your embassy is supposed to be in the capital city. So, yes, there's symbolism to it. And now the symbolism is the right symbolism, which is that the embassy is in the capital city of Israel. That That's just the way it should be, the way it, it is now, because of Trump. And now with the Golan Heights, the same thing happened. So, I mean, I, I can just tell you that there's really very little, uh, there's really very little that you can point to when it comes to Trump and Israel that he could be doing, that, that he should be doing differently, if anything. And yet we were, we were told all along that, oh, it's, uh, you know, he, he doesn't know what he's doing and he's going to make all these mistakes. And no, actually, sometimes a person who comes in with fresh eyes and common sense and an approach that isn't looking for all of you know all of his peers and the fancy newspapers say, oh, what a what brilliant statecraft, right? So many of these people that we've been led to believe are some kind of uh, foreign policy genius. They're not. They're not. They they the results speak for themselves, and the results are poor. And when you look back on what we were told all along. It was often through this prism of the very same people that are part of that foreign policy consensus making, right? Everyone's got to agree this is a good idea. Well, if you go along with that, they write nice things about you. If you don't, they write bad things about you. And everyone has an ego, especially politicians. And so there's this under, well, this understandable drive for people to do what they think they'll be praised for doing. Trump moved the embassy. It was the right move. Move the embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. And now Trump has decided to just push aside all the nonsense and say Golan Heights is Israeli territory. Well done, Trump. You know, maybe not getting everything right all the time on all things, but on this one, let's call it, let's call it like it is. He got it done. I'm the one that gets it done. Oh, she's on the cover of Time magazine, everybody. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 
And I love this this uh, this game that they play of why are conservatives so obsessed with her? Why is the left so obsessed with her? Why has she become such a a an icon of progressivism without really doing much of anything and without knowing much of anything? Well, that never slows down places like Time magazine that has written a over 3000 word just to call it a puff piece is an insult to puff pieces but she complained in this in this piece which was which was astonishing that quote an entire generation which is now becoming one of the largest electorates in America came of age and never saw american prosperity I have never seen that or experienced it really in my adult life. That's that's a quote from this article on Ocasio-Cortez. And, you know, it, it, the piece then talks about how she took out loans when she went to BU. She graduated in 2011 uh, with $25,000 in student debt. Then she went and worked at an educational nonprofit and did some side gigs as a bartender and through her 20s, lived paycheck to paycheck. Uh, Okay, everybody, I I lived paycheck to paycheck throughout my 20s as well and was not making very much money at all. I don't understand how this is some big sob story or or, or rather that it would justify the feeling, the sentiment that she expressed here that there's never been real prosperity in her uh, her adult lifetime. That's just... That's just a bizarre statement. It just flies in the face of reality. Why would she think that? Look, I, I've got complaints too. You know, the boomers never want to leave their jobs. They've got too much debt. They, they have to service the debt. They want to stay in their cushy positions. They don't want to retire. I mean, there's a lot of, so there's not as much headroom in a lot of places. And the industry is changing because of technology much more rapidly than it was in previous decades. That is also the case and you know, there, there's a lot of things that we can point to that the housing market you know the uh the joke that i tell sometimes is the one thing you know millennials can't ruin is the housing market because they can't get into the housing market uh all all of these things are are fair points for discussion but this country and and the benefits that we have now as a result of the wealth that has been created you know, we're spoiled. I mean, we are spoiled in this country now. We we live in a time, and it depends on also how, how you want to gauge it, right? If you want to look at this through the full scope of human history, the average American, the average American is so healthy, well-fed, well-off, and comfortable that you would make a medieval king green with envy. Um. Isn't that, is that the color you turn when you're envious, right? Green with jealousy, green with envy. So thank you, John. Just making sure. Uh, you know, we, we are able to walk around now and order whatever product we want off the phone we have that has more computing power than the entire, you know, NATO alliance in 1950 did and talk to people all over the world for almost no cost read anything we want to read, usually for free, learn anything we want to learn, usually for free, and, you know, have video, instant video contact with loved ones, almost, you know, certainly anywhere in the United States, almost anywhere in the world these days, and are more able than ever to 
move around and work from home and all, you know, so there's so much that, and you look at the the cost of a few things have gotten really bad, healthcare and education. And, oh, that's right. Those are two areas where there's a lot of government regulation, intervention, oversight, but consumer products are incredibly inexpensive. But see, here's the thing. People don't like to hear about how things are good. People don't like to hear it. I mean, you may right now, I don't know. You may be like, ah, Buck, you know, it's not that good. Look, we've all got stuff, you know. I mean, I woke up this morning and my ankle just really hurts for no reason. And, you know, stuff happens, right? We've, we've all got our things. You know, we, we all have our struggles. And I'm not trying to say, oh, everything is great. Just be quiet. You're lucky you're not, you know, dying of bubonic plague in the Middle Ages. I mean, that's not a helpful frame of reference either. But for Ocasio-Cortez to say that, there's no American prosperity. I mean, that's just that's just silly. I mean, this is this is a a I think a, you could say an, an objectively stupid and bizarre thing to say, and yet she is still hailed as somebody who really gets this generation coming up, and uh, and I do worry a little bit that the the millennials who are beneath who are, who are below me in the age bracket, you know, not quite the gray beard that I am. The millennials who are coming up because their idols, you know, in politics and in media have moved so far left that they're going to believe this stuff. They're going to believe that America is this country of deprivation now compared to what it should be when you know you have more. Give me a metric and I'll show you, if not that metric, something very similar to it that proves that this country is we are getting wealthier and more prosperous all the time it is it's just happening and now it won't go in a straight line i i do think that we're due for a recession of some kind soon and my worry is that that recession will be politically exploited by the left the timing will be perfect for a sanders or ocasio cortez like person to come along and say see you know the fat cats were lying to you all along and now we're gonna we're gonna really you know soak it or soak them and and stick it to them you could soak it to them i guess that'd be kind of a fun cistern is a word by the way found that out yes oh did we, we i did google that when i was on air okay just making sure everyone knows cistern is a word you just don't hear it very often but there has to be another a word like brethren and we've we've actually made up a few words on the show that i think should be entered into the you know, Miriam or Webster's or whichever dictionary people think is the best one. So AOC gets to go around and say things that are just untrue and no one will really challenge her. And I think that it's a a very uh, clear symbol of the intellectual bankruptcy of the left that they have as their most prominent intellectual, somebody who is an anti-intellectual and doesn't even know it. She's not saying, yeah, I don't read a lot of books, but, you know, I've got a good gut instinct on this matter. She's somebody who talks about these issues in the language of a person who wants to be considered smart, but does not actually have the knowledge to back any of it up. And that is, you know, what's really concerning isn't what you know, it's what you know that ain't so. And that is the case with Ocasio-Cortez and the way she talks about uh, socialism and a whole host of uh, of issues that are associated with it. So this, uh, that millennials have never tasted prosperity. No, no, it's, we're quite prosperous. I mean, that, you know, the housing market, which the government has also been very involved in, I, I have some criticisms of 
how the government has decided to make housing almost a, a, a right in this country. And there have been parts of that that are that are problematic. There have been aspects of that that, you know, almost melted down the economy before. But sure enough, things are things are actually going OK right now. And I just wish that we could get one interviewer to sit down with Ocasio-Cortez and ask her some real questions about some real things. Just one. One interviewer would be nice. You know, say, okay, so how are we going to pay for these things? What do you really think we should do? Uh, Do you think that she could manage to get through an interview on the Green New Deal without a complete meltdown? I think the answer is no, because she doesn't understand the science. She doesn't understand the economics. It's just all part of the the cultural left, right? The, The left believes in climate change. They believe in this Green New Deal, this kind of feel-goodism in place of knowledge, experience, and history, that is a, that's a troubling thing. And you see different points, not just in our history, but in history more generally, when you have uh, young and foolish people who are able to rally the masses behind foolish ideas, uh, we head into a bad place. But you know, I want to talk to you about Sweden a little bit and socialism and how Sweden is not a socialist country. I'll make the case coming up. It's always fun when I see an article out there that deals with the subject in some detail that I've talked to you about here on the show. Capitalism saved Sweden is this piece that I saw today from the American Institute for Economic Research. You've, you've heard me say this, I'm sure, many times. And now is one of those moments when I guess I'll be repeating myself for a second. But Sweden is not a socialist country, folks. Do not listen to the left-wing Democrats who try to tell you otherwise. Do not listen to them. Sweden is not a left-wing country. Sweden is, in fact, a very free market and capitalist-oriented country that also has a large social welfare state or large safety net, however you want to say it. That's what the truth of Sweden is. Now, Sweden in this piece, it's written by Michael Munger, and he goes into some detail here about how Democrats play this game and they've really been doing it since the 2016, I'm sorry, 20, yes, 2016 election when Bernie Sanders was pejoratively referred to by people like me as, you know, the mayor of Stockholm because they'd say, oh, we can't do universal health care. We can't do this or that because, you know, they would say, look at Sweden, look at Denmark. And then we're supposed to accept that, well, then clearly if it works there, it can work here. But what works there isn't what Democrats say works there. And and in fact, and this is where this piece really comes in handy about how capitalism saved Sweden. Sweden was in the 70s a more accurately described as as a socialist country. You had a lot of government control of industry. So the government was running large sectors of industry, essentially the government was running businesses, very important, very large businesses, and unsurprisingly doing a terrible job of it. And he gives this definition here of state ownership and control of the means of production, state direction of production decisions, and direct state control of education and employment decisions of individuals. That's socialism. All right. And then he tries to, in this, uh, very astute analysis, break down the differences between socialism and capitalism. 
But we're going to have to really do a good job going into this election season, understanding what's what when it comes to socialism and capitalism. Because if we get lazy with the definitions and with our analysis, the other side is going to get away with a lot. Um, Sweden was a socialist country in the 70s and couldn't make it work and then decided to become a very free market based economy. The idea was if you let the markets decide economic activity in the country, you're going to be much, much wealthier, much more efficient. Everyone will be better off. And then with that greater wealth and productivity, they've decided to have a uh, a very large and some would say a bit of largesse in their social safety uh, system that they have, which means it's free college and free health care is, is really what Sweden has that people usually point to as something that we could emulate. But if you really look at Sweden, it is the sixth most protective country in the world when it comes to private property rights. The U.S. is the 25th most protective. Uh, Sweden is the 19th most capitalist country in the country based on the metrics assessed in this piece from the Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom. Uh, freedom. Uh, Sweden is in the top 15 most capitalist nations. Sweden, Sweden, Sweden. In terms of property rights, financial freedom, and business freedom. Most sectors are largely unregulated, and the freedom to move capital makes Sweden among the most capitalist nations in the world. Peace goes on. Quote, Sweden fully privatized its pension system, moving from defined benefit to defined contribution. There's a means-tested add-on guaranteed pension top-up for the least well-off, but the first-line system is personal pension accounts invested in one of the 700 private index funds managed by private fund managers. It is the most privatized pension system by far in all of Europe. Sweden has a 100% universal voucher system for education. Folks, Sweden rejected socialism and decided that it would in the really in the uh, 80s and 90s go on a very free market and pro-capitalism path and has become a very well-off country as a result. But when you look at the way business itself is conducted in Sweden, it is free market. It is not directed by the state. It is in no way socialist. Uh, they just have a redistribution of income via high taxation to pay for a large welfare state. Now, the other part, so so that's that's one important point here that we have to get down. Sweden, Sweden is not a uh, socialist country. People who say it is don't know what they're talking about. And it just is a country that has is very free market, but has a large social welfare state. You've heard me say this before, but this is an in-depth analysis here uh, at this American Institute for Economic Research piece. You know, this is one of these wonky think tank pieces that I come across that's really, really useful. And I think this will be important for you when you're talking to your friends, especially if, you know, you got, you're going to have that friend. I don't care where you are across the country. He's like, hey, man, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. I just think we should have free this and free that. And Sweden does it, and Sweden's great. You can say, well, Sweden's not socialism, my friend. Sweden is not a socialist country. And very few socialist countries will refer to themselves as Stalinist socialist countries. They want to be democratic socialism. They want... Uh, but but the main 
difference, for example, between what happened in Venezuela from an economic perspective, from a government control perspective in Sweden, is that in Venezuela, the government ran industries and set price controls. The government said, you can charge this for this product. Didn't care what the market said. That caused enormous pressures on different businesses that then caused them to collapse. When they collapsed and did not have products to sell, the government blamed the greedy capitalists who were not allowed to set their own prices in Venezuela. And that's how you had the downward spiral. It was a top-down spiral because it was a truly socialist economy that they that the Maduro government was operating. Uh, or at least there were aspects of it that were that were accurately described as socialist. So, you know, Sweden is is not what they say it is. Don't let them get away with it. And then on top of that, the middle class in Sweden pays about 60% in taxes. So, understand that part of this argument and you'll be able to I think fight back against all the people that say, "Oh, we we could afford this. It's just the, the evil, greedy Republicans don't want to do this. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not going to be the millionaires and the billionaires who are paying for all this. You will be paying for free college for everyone, free health care for everyone, including illegal aliens, by the way, and the 100,000 a month that are coming across the border right now. You will be paying for all of that. You'll be paying for all of the largesse of the federal bureaucracy of the Department of Education, of the university system that has become so bloated and I think turning out in so many cases such an inferior product when it comes to real education. But at least, at least we should all be on the same page with Sweden is not a socialist country. And if you want the welfare state that you have in Sweden, you better start telling everybody you're going to pay 60% in taxes. Let's see how that goes over in 2020. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Man, it's starting to get nice outside, everybody. It's a Roll Call for the springtime. I have to say, I'm looking forward to being able to walk around in a t-shirt again. It'll be be a nice change of pace put away all the heavy winter clothing the winter boots and all that stuff let's get to your thoughts though because we're doing a double roll call so we can hear from everybody we can today facebook.com slash buck sexton if you want your thoughts to be heard coast to coast which is also the name of a radio show by the way lanny writes i'm sorry buck but i'm so sick of hearing beto's name uttered every day Lenny, I'm like sick of it too because I just want everybody to hold hands and just be friends with each other. Robert Francis O'Rourke is his name. I've heard other conservatives call him by that name and Dr. Seb Gorka calls him Bob. <laughs> I wish you would too. I heart your show. Uh, don't be mad, but you know, you got to stop talking about Beto. All right, all right, all right. Fine, fine. We have a little fun with Beto. It was really the week of the Beto. And maybe next week will be the week of the Yang or the week of the the Harris or something. Somebody else will be in the center of the uh, in the center of the storm. Dwayne Buck refers to Buck as Buck all the time. Well, Dwayne, I know that's kind of the joke, isn't it, my friend? Ken 
Buck, FYI, if you get a chance to this lecture by activist David Hogg, um, I will not listen to the lecture by activist David Hogg because he does not know anything and I do not care what virtue signaling and uh, nonsense he cares to spew. I've, I've heard enough. I mean, I, I know that he doesn't know what he's talking about and he's a nasty and dishonest person. So there you go. Kent Buck, avid podcast listener, been listening since your real news days. Recently, I've been debating with my conservative friends about the crisis on our southern border, and one of my friends sent me a link to your op-ed on the Hill on the same subject. Your piece helped make my point that due to the dangers of fentanyl and migration en masse, we have an emergency the likes of which the U.S. has not had to deal with before. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the good fight. Shields high. Kent. Well, Kent from OSS, Original Saturday Squad, thank you so much for being with me all these years. And I'm so glad that the, the piece I wrote for TheHill.com was able to help you make a sound argument on this issue. Uh, the, the border is in very bad shape right now. Uh, we do not have a secure border at all. And in fact, the laws are being exploited in order to make sure that we do not have an orderly, we do not have the immigration system that we have been promised. That's what's really going on. Uh, we don't have the immigration system that the American people generally think that we do. And that should really concern everyone. That should be something that gets all people who care about the direction of this country and the future of this country paying uh, much more attention. Chris, definitely a deal breaker if she is a Democrat in dating. LOL, have a great weekend. Thanks, Chris. I don't know. I don't know if I can agree with that. Sometimes the political passion turns into the other passion. Uh, you know, sometimes it's good to be talking to a Democrat. I mean, I, I also work in an organization where there's a lot of Democrats around me at the Hill. So and I've become very close friends with a, with a number of them. So I've I've learned to to get along with Democrats. Uh, I think it depends on what kind of Democrat. You know, they're they're the Democrats that you can have conversations with. The Democrats you can't. You know, if people really believe that the world's going to end in ten years from climate change, then I think it's really it is tough at that point to have a meaningful exchange with them. It it, it is difficult to uh, find a, a common ground there. But if somebody really believes that we should have a more Norwegian or Swedish style safety net than what we already have. And they believe in, I don't know, free college. Maybe I can, I can at least talk to them about that. I mean, and these, these are ideas that have big downsides that most Democrats just pretend to not understand, but I, I can kind of, I can get there. I can at least have that chat with them. Richard, right? Shields high theater. 9,000 must happen. It sounds amazing. I would love to see you with some special forces folks critique movies. Or what about you with comp movies and some NYB, uh, NYPD folks? Are you with some CIA folks? Many options. Keep making awesome things. Shields high. Um, you know, Richard, uh, I love the idea. And I, I'm trying to get down to do a, an event with a, a former special operations guy um, in Florida where we're going to bring in another a Marine and we're, we're, we're trying to do something kind of like what I laid out. It's just a question of scheduling it, but I do think it'd be a lot of fun to be fair on the NYPD side. I was never a cop. I was never actually a, uh, 
police officer or detective. So my experience was very specific to working as a counterterrorism specialist in the intelligence division. So it was really, it was an analytic role. It was a a lot, of, a lot of meetings, a lot of conversations with lawyers, stuff like that. Um, but still would be cool. And I, I'd love to do that. Uh, have sit down with some of the old. If I could get some of the crusty old detectives and sergeants that I know from the NYPD to do that with a with like a, a cop show, that would be a lot of fun. But we'd have to edit it before. And it would take a little production work. But I'm glad you like the basic idea. Autumn writes, Buck, love the show. Well, Autumn, you have fantastic taste in radio programming. I'm looking for good, historically accurate books to read. I remember you talking about one that was on Cortez. What was it called? When I Google books about Cortez, the top suggestion was books about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Not sure I'd have uh, the ability to hold my lunch down if I, if I had to uh, read that. Now, the, the book that I read, um, you know, which, which I think that you will, you will enjoy is, and I'm, I'm pulling it up right now, so I give you the exact title. I mean, it, it is the name of, Cortez is in the name of the book, obviously, but it's, uh, yeah, Con- Conquistador Hernan Cortez, King Montezuma, and the Last Stand of the Aztecs by Buddy Levy is the book that I read. Uh, it, it's a really good read. I mean, you'll enjoy it. Uh, Cortez, you can make a case, and I, I think it's a strong case, that Hernan Cortez was the most like like beat the odds from a military campaign perspective beat the odds more than any other figure in history i'm not saying that that's a definitive statement but you could certainly make the case that what he did to show up with a few hundred guys and take on a a massive empire with with millions of inhabitants and and straight up conquer it is astonishing Um, and and it took a lot more than just the the guns and steel and horses that they showed up with, although that was certainly very, very helpful. Uh, Autumn, I'm also a big fan of the uh, of Roger Crowley, who does books on on really the uh, period of the of the Renaissance in the Mediterranean and the wars between Christian and Muslim states in the Christian Muslim world. Uh, the, my favorite is Empire of the Seas, but he also has, wrote a book on the fall of Constantinople that I've read. I, I'd really so if you go on Amazon, look up Roger Crowley. He's a British guy. He's written some really great books. I very much enjoy those. Richard, enjoy catching your show whenever I can. I also want to let you know that I live in a neighboring community of South Bend and Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I've heard you struggle to pronounce his name, and many in the media do, since we hear it all the time. Uh, on our local news, I wanted to help you out. It should be pronounced Buddha Judge. Buddha Judge. Okay. You can hear it pronounced in the link on the right at the beginning of this video. All right. Buddha Judge. Buddha Judge. I can do that. All right. I got that one. A lot of hard names to pronounce. It's Beto, not Beto. Buddha Judge, not Buddha Jig. Uh, who else is Kamala, not Kamala? Now, there's a lot. There's a lot that you have to pay attention to. You know, it's a tricky business. I work in this media world. You know, it's difficult stuff. Thomas writes, Beto. I see. I just did it. Beto. Darn it, Buck. Code read yourself. Beto is a valley girl. Before your time, maybe. No, Thomas, I know what a valley girl. Like, totally. Like, I mean, like, whatever. Because, like, I just want to go shopping. And every place you go has valet. Yeah, I know what valley girls are. 
I, I grew up watching so many movies in the 90s, and in the 90s, there was nothing cooler than California and Los Angeles specifically. Like, everyone wanted, you know, Beverly Hills, 90210, and all that stuff. L.A. was the promised land. Now, L.A.'s nice, but a lot of traffic, and I am not somebody who enjoys sitting around in a car and not moving fast, so I'm not sure that that's the move for me. We will do uh, some more Roll Call Team coming up in just a moment. Double dose of roll call is your way right now. It's not coming your way. It is, it is here. Matthew, Democrats want to lower the voting age to 16 because 16-year-old kids are so mature. But, democ- uh, but Democrats, Democrats, we could start calling, oh, are you a Democrat? Democrats say gun sales should be raised from 18 to 21 because young adults are too immature I say put it on the same ballot. If you vote 16-year-olds are mature, then they get to vote and buy guns. Well, see, Matthew, what you have is called a principle, or at least you have consistency. And liberals don't aspire to consistency. They embrace hypocrisy as long as it is on the pathway to power. Because there's no way around that. It, it, is, it is an inconsistent thing to say that you should vote when you're 16, but you can't own a gun until you're 21. There's no, and I will say it right now before some of you say, well, Buck, what about the drinking age? I believe the drinking age should be 18. I believe that 18 is an adult. An adult is an adult is an adult. 18 is an adult. And I think that the drinking age being 21 really allows for a kind of fetishization of, it's a tough word to say, of drinking on college campuses and it becomes this kind of naughty, ooh, cool thing to do. I also think that our country could probably have some really worthwhile conversations in general about alcohol across the board. I think that alcohol enjoyed the right way is a very nice thing. I like a glass of wine, as you know. I like good tequila. But when I think back to the, I think back to the way that things operated on, on the college campus that I was on, at least when I was a student, and it was just nuts. I mean, people were functioning alcoholics for four years, really, drinking. I mean, if you're getting wasted four, four or five nights a week, that's not normal. It's not good for you. And I would offer that there should be a much better, much better conversation for young people about how, look, it, it slows you down, especially if you're really into being physical and active. It's terrible for you. And, and there's all kinds of stuff. Drinking too much, I'm talking about. Not just drinking, drinking to excess Anything to excess is bad. That's why you call it excess. Although, I don't know, maybe this show suffers from an excess of awesome, and we just have to accept that. Jim, just want to drop a line saying I'm, I'm with you. Shields high. Well, Jim, I'm with you, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate you writing in. Good to talk to you. Uh, much, much obliged. Let's see here. Marina writes, freedom dividend. If they're going to give out all that money, why not just end income taxes? Besides, isn't the standard income deduction $12,000? That's got to play a role in the big picture where they're going with all this. For those who earn enough to file and take the deduction, consider that your, consider that your 12000 OSS Marina. Yeah, Marina, look, the, the freedom dividend, which Andrew Yang, whom I interviewed today uh, at some length, it's an idea that appeals to people. It's always, though when you start to get to the costs and how you'd enact this, that things get, yes, more complicated, more difficult. It's, it sounds great. Give people money. They'll spend money. Everyone has some money. No one's going to be destitute anymore. But we do have a lot of social welfare programs in place already. 
We have a trillion dollar welfare state, and yet we still have people in poverty in this country. Um, poverty itself is a very interesting area of study for social scientists. Uh, every every society will always have people that are considered poor and that will be considered impoverished in some in some form. I, I think in many in many ways, the best thing you can hope for is the elimination of of true poverty, like subsistence living, where people are dangerously close to dying of preventable disease uh, on a regular basis, not having enough food to eat at a dangerous level, not having a safe place to live. Um, because the version, for example, of poverty in America is very different from what you'd get in, say, Bangladesh. Our version of poverty, or in, in West Africa, poverty that I have seen up close and personal myself that is in a completely different league from what is considered poverty here in the United States. Brian writes, uh, Buck, keep up the great work. In my business, I tend to be in the Bahamas. I deal with a lot of clients. I noticed a disturbing trend with regards to Chinese interest in the country so very close to our shores. In 2012, the Chinese came into Nassau with Chinese labor and built a soccer stadium as part of their stadium diplomacy program they do all over the world. Now they have built a deep water port sub base uh, down there, a brand new secure marina with 20 foot high electrified fencing topped by razor wire and huge lights to eliminate a massive concrete pad. There are two large barracks. My unknowing friend tried to get close on his boat and was waved to leave immediately by a guard in a military uniform. China is prepping for war in 20 years. Sadly, I'm not joking. Um, China builds port in the Bahamas. I got to look into this. Interesting, Brian. Yeah, China is taking the long view and we are not in this country. And China wants to supplant us as the global hegemon. And we think that China just wants to be friends. That's not the case. And we're going to learn the hard way that long-term planning beats short-term handshaking any day of the week. Bob, right? Uh-oh. I used to work for the NCAA, so need to jump in on your rant on college athletics. First of all, I believe 90% of the NCAA revenue, which is really only from basketball, football championship is outside the NCAA, is distributed back out to the schools. The remainder is used to run all 87 championships and enforcement. As you can imagine, D3 women's water polo is not a moneymaker. Also, keep in mind that Title IX factors in here, so any money you spend against men's sports, you have to spend equally in women's sports. Essentially, you can fund men's football and basketball and then 20 women's sports, and you will have to drop all other men's sports to equal out. Uh, sorry, I just let it, let, needed to let you know. No, Bob, I, I know that. Um, I also, though, just have a... This is a philosophical difference that I have with people who think that they should be changing admission standards to bring in athletes at schools. I disagree with that. I think that that should not be done. Uh, then there's the broader conversation about does this actually make money for the schools? Usually it does not, but we'll have to leave that. Everybody, you've got some homework this week. And your homework, have a fantastic weekend. Really enjoy yourself. Rest, relax. Come back on Monday, ready for action. Until then, Shields High.